Friends, I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is found on page 888 of the Pew Bible in front of you. We pick up our series that we're calling Life Giver. And we're looking at Jesus, the life of Jesus, and how he gives new life to those who follow him. And as we turn to John chapter 4, I originally wanted to handle a very large section of text all the way through verse 45. Uh, But... That is a lot of Bible for one sermon. (laughs) And we have some great baptismal testimonies that we want to hear today as well. And so what I'm going to do is, this morning I am going to preach part one of this text. And next week we'll continue on in part two. And so as you turn to John chapter 4, please follow with me as we read verses 1 through 26. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. 
And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Living water, lasting food, worship, God's ways, and eternal life. These are some of the words that pop out in the first 45 verses of John chapter 4. And what we see here is that Jesus has this interaction with this Samaritan woman, and it's all leading up to a greater understanding of these types of ideas. Living water, worship, eternal life. And as he interacts with her, we see that their initial interaction can maybe be described by Jesus showing grace for what we can see on the outside. Her race, her gender, even her status. The text looked at with me says that Jesus leaves Galilee. He went through Samaria with his disciples. He could have gone a different way. Many Jews went a different way. They went around Samaria on a much longer journey rather than going through because they didn't like the Samaritans. But Jesus had a purpose. And so he and his disciples went right into the middle of Samaria. And as he does, he arrives at a well, a well that's thousands of years old. And he meets a woman who is there by herself, and he sends his disciples along on their way to get some food. He doesn't send just a couple of them, though surely a couple of them could have gotten the food. He sends all of them. Because he wants to interact with this woman alone. And so as she comes, he sits there, he asks for a drink of water. And this is where the story starts to get very interesting. Because there are a number of things that are wrong about this scene. This should not be happening this way. Jews stopping in Samaria. I'll explain that in a minute. A woman at the well all by herself. I mean, women typically went to the well with other women. They typically went in the morning or they went in the evening. But here is a single woman at the well by herself in the middle of the day. Why is she there by herself? What is it about this one that is isolated? And then you have a Jewish man alone with a Samaritan woman and he's talking to her. And not only is he talking to her, he's asking her for something. And so the tension that is building is maybe lost on us a little bit culturally, but as you start to put some of these pieces together, you see that the scene is all wrong, that Jesus should not be there, he should not be with this woman, he should not be talking to her, and he should definitely not be asking her for something because she was the wrong type. And she articulates the tension in verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink of water from me, a woman of Samaria. You see, the Jews did not like the Samaritans too much. (laughs) They had a great distaste for them for a number of reasons. To understand the history, you need to look back 700 years before. 
Israel was conquered by the Assyrian army. And at that time in 722 BC, the vast majority of Israelites, able-bodied men and women, were deported from the land. But some, for one reason or another, stayed behind. And the ones that stayed behind intermarried with the Assyrians. And as they intermarried with the Assyrians, they adopted some of their practices, they adopted some of their religions, and they had offspring. Their offspring are called Samaritans. And so when the Israelites returned, some three or four hundred years later, to find these offspring, these Samaritans, they viewed these Samaritans as half-breeds, as political rebels, as descendants of a tribe long bereft of loyalty or royalty. They viewed these Samaritans as ceremonially unclean. You don't talk to them, and you certainly don't touch them, and you definitely don't use any of the tools that they use, or the silverware that they use, or the water buckets that they use, lest you too become unclean. Samaritans had a mixed religion. They worshipped God, but they didn't recognize all the books of the Old Testament. They only recognized the first five books of the Old Testament, the, the law, the Torah, and the prophets and the Psalms they discarded. They set up an alternative place of worship. The Jews would worship in the temple, in Jerusalem, on the mount. But these Samaritans, well, they set up a different temple to God on Mount Gerizim. And so you can see what's happening here. There's this incredible intertwining of race and culture and religion that has created an incredible distaste of the Jews toward the Samaritans and of the Samaritans toward the Jews. And Jesus is right in the middle of it with this woman who on the outside is the wrong type. And what he says to her is remarkable. In verse 10, look at it with me. Jesus answers her. She asks the question, how could you be doing this? And he answers her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. She doesn't understand. The well is deep. He has nothing to draw water with of his own. And besides, they are standing next to Jacob's well. Jacob's well is a well that has living water in it. This isn't just one of these wells that has sort of a cistern of water at the bottom that eventually runs out. This is a well that is fed by a spring and has been in existence and producing new, bubbling, fresh living water for thousands of years. How could you say you're going to give me living water when I have living water? It's right here. Are you greater than Jacob? She asks. And Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become a spring in him, of water welling up to eternal life. Jacob's water will only satisfy you for a short time, and then you need another drink. <laughs> but Jesus gives living 
water that satisfies the longings for thirst. And then when the longings for thirst return, this living water consumed by the person replicates into a spring of living water that's actually within, he says. Becomes self-replicating so much so that there's continual satisfaction for thirst for all of the days of your life, even to eternal life. Now, many, for many, the idea of living water that produces ongoing satisfaction brings us back to some Old Testament passages. I think of Ezekiel chapter 47. The prophet is given a vision in Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, and the vision is of the temple of God and a river of living water flowing out of the temple all through the land and producing all of these incredible things. And it comes to its climax in Ezekiel 47, 12, and it says, on the banks of both sides of this river, they'll grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water from them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Or how about the promise of God giving water as a promise of salvation? Isaiah 44, 3 for I will pour out water on a thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And then he gives the parallel to what this means. I pour out water and streams to the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing to your descendants. And so Jesus stands there with the well of living water from Jacob's well, offering her a different type, a new type, a better type of living water. And he says essentially, yes. My water is greater than Jacob's water, and yes, I'm greater than Jacob. He gives living water. And he even is offering this water for an unclean, second-class half-breed, like a Samaritan woman. He's giving living water to the type of person that you would not want to associate with. Jews avoided these people. Jews wouldn't even ask to draw a drink out of their well, even though it was Jacob's well. And they certainly wouldn't ask that she would do it for them with her own bucket. <laughs> but Jesus is making a point. What's happening here is that Jesus is showing her a tremendous amount of of grace so that she can see the gift that he's offering. Sweet, sweet grace. Grace for the barriers that are on the outside. Gender, race, status. Some of you have experienced a lack of opportunity because of your gender or because of your race or because of your status. You know what it's like to be avoided or excluded. In chapter 3, Jesus speaks to somebody on the opposite end of the spectrum. In the first part of chapter 3, he speaks to a religious Pharisee, an elite named Nicodemus. And in his conversation with this religious elite, they're talking about how a person enters the kingdom of God. How? And the answer is they need to be born again. 
And here, in just one chapter later, he's talking on the opposite end of the spectrum. Over there, he's talking to the elite, and over here, he is talking to the lowest of the low of the low. And he's not concerned with as much of the how question you enter into the kingdom of God, but he's very concerned with the who. Who can enter? Even half-breeds. Not just the Jews, even those who the Jews despised. That's grace. Rumor has it that a couple of you like to eat at Chick-fil-A. It's among the favorite for Christians for a lot of reasons, certainly because of the Christian ownership of Chick-fil-A and their sort of unwavering stand that they take for um, biblical ideals. And many of us particularly find helpful and, and fruitful and admirable that they take a stand and they don't open the restaurant on Sunday morning or Sunday at all. And we're thankful for that until it's about 12.15 on Sunday. <laughs> and there's nothing prepared for lunch and it's on the way home. But it turns out that this uh, stand that they take does actually have some wiggle room in it when it's needed. As consistent as they are about being closed on Sundays, regardless of their location, it turns out that Chick-fil-A is not pharisaical about it. They recognize the need for exceptions, and particularly the exceptions along the lines of exercising grace. And this happened just last winter, almost a year ago, December 18th, 2017, when the international airport in Atlanta, one of the busiest airports in the world, had a complete blackout. You remember that story? People are starting to travel for Christmas. This busy airport had canceled now hundreds of flights and thousands of passengers were stranded. And while Atlanta's municipal government was busy to try to find accommodations for people to stay while they sorted all this out, they tweeted out a welcome message on a Sunday afternoon. At Chick-fil-A, we'll provide food for the passengers. So the store that's always closed on Sundays was happy to open their doors on this particular day of rest because of thousands of people, thousands of people who, by the way, are growing in their increased hostility toward that same company for taking the stands that they do take, including being closed on Sundays, among a whole bunch of other things. They opened their doors simply because the people had need and they could help. That's grace. And so here, the Jewish son of God, standing in the false place of worship with the ones who oppose the Jews and their worship and their prophets and the ones who the Jews opposed. And he is pursuing her. He's pursuing her. And he's offering her living water. That's grace. <laughs> Jesus is pursuing her. She doesn't yet understand, but he's not done yet. He offers her living water, and her response in verse 15 is what you might expect. Sir, give me this water, please, so that I may not be thirsty or have to come back here and draw water again. 
she doesn't understand. She's partially concerned with what she conceives this thirst to be, but also partially concerned with not having to come back to the well, not having to come back to the well and keep drawing, not having to come back to the well by herself, not having to come back to the well in the middle of the day when all the other women aren't around, not having to come back to the well. And so Jesus says something to her that's really peculiar. He says, go call your husband and come back. Why? on earth would he say that? That's pretty odd. He's talking about living water. Something that will quench the thirsts of her very soul. And now he asks for her husband out of the blue? And as he asks for the husband, it seems like the conversation just completely changes. It seems like what's happening back then is now gone. Living water is never mentioned again. And now we're on to something else. Well, what he's doing is he's going deeper. He's moving from what is on the outside to what is on the inside. And with one question, he asks and exposes what has to be one of the most painful realities of this woman's life. Because he's not just interested in her race or her gender or her religion. He's interested in what's really happening on the inside. And so the woman answers him, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right in saying that you have no husband. You've had five. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. And the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Five husbands and now a live-in boyfriend. Five and her avoidance is displayed in this simple answer, well, I don't have a husband. And Jesus has to say to her twice, what you say is true, but I know the truth. <laughs> what you say is true implied, I know the truth. You're right, you don't. You've had five. And now you have a live-in boyfriend. He's not content with simply staying on the outside. In one swift sentence, he penetrates to the very depth of her difficulty, to the depth of their pain, and to the depth of her thirst. I mean, what kind of person has five husbands? Think about the deep and profound thirst that this woman must have. Never enough. Never what she wants. Never the right guy. Never enough sex. Never enough attention. Never enough position. Never enough money. Five husbands. Five failed marriages. And now she's on to the next. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe, maybe it's the other way around. Maybe she's the victim. Maybe she's had an incredible run of bad choices. Husband number one is abusive and one is never pleased and one went for the younger woman and one just never seemed to click and one didn't like the fact that she couldn't bear children. But the hurt, the pain, the thirst on the inside is profound right here because you don't go through five failed marriages without tremendous pain and tremendous thirst. And you don't go through five failed marriages without a tremendous sense of longing and you don't have sexual relationships with six different men and have an overwhelming sense of need 
And so Jesus asks her the question, and it goes right to the inside. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that this passage is simply about us being an example like Jesus is about being warm and friendly to the people who are the undesirables. That's not what this passage is about. Because the truth of the matter and what Jesus is trying to get us to see is that you are the woman and I am the woman. And he's pursuing her and he's pursuing you. doesn't take too much to think about the ways that you're trying to quench your inner thirst. Maybe you've not been so thirsty as to have five failed marriages, but maybe you have tried to quench your thirst through adultery. Or maybe you have been divorced once or twice. Or maybe you've had 500 lovers through your nefarious activities on the internet. Or maybe that's not it. Maybe you're addicted to material things and you look to quench that thirst by buying more all the time, but it's not enough. Or maybe it's gossip and you need to feel better about yourself and so you keep throwing out those bombs left and right. Or maybe you thirst for recognition, so much so that at great cost to your family, your own family, that you continue to climb the ladder at your own company even though you know the consequences at home but the recognition before you is attractive but it's never enough. Or maybe it's the simple thirst that all of us have for comfort in this life. In whatever form you can get it. And it dominates your life, it dominates your agenda, it dominates your decisions, but at the end of the day, it's sapping your soul and it's leaving you thirsty. He's pursuing you. He's pursuing you right now. And this is the God who pursues people who aren't likely to be pursued by anybody. This is the God that pursued Jacob and wrestled him into submission. The same Jacob whose well we're talking about. This is the God who pursued Rahab, the prostitute who lived in the wall of Jericho, who'd become the unlikely matriarch. This is the God who pursued David by sending Nathan to confront him of his adultery and his murderous actions of Bathsheba's husband. This is the God who pursued Jonah while he was on the run, going the exact opposite direction of what God would have him to do, and God chased him down. This is a God who, in the form of his son Jesus, pursues the blind and the beggars and the tax collectors and the demon-possessed. And he pursued an unworthy, racial, half-breed, adulterous, heretical woman at the well. And he's pursuing you with living water. It's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, only you know what's really going on in here, the types of things that you find your longings for, that you seek your comfort in, that you seek to have quench the thirst of your soul. It's amazing. 
that you keep going back, that I keep going back there looking for satisfaction, and yet in the middle of that, he is pursuing us? Can't seem to find satisfaction, can't seem to find purpose, can't seem to find significance or meaning on our own? I mean, who could possibly enter the kingdom of God? Only the Jews? Only the ones who look like they have it all together on the outside? Only the ones that come from a certain class? Who could possibly enter the kingdom of God? Only the people who really have it all together and organized on the inside? And Jesus says, no, no, no. Anyone can enter this kingdom regardless of what's happening on the outside and especially regardless of what's happening on the inside if they come to the one by whom they can enter the Messiah. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. The lost. <laughs> he comes that they may have life and have it to the full. And that implies that they, that you, that me were dead. <laughs> and he gives life. And that means, as we see in verses 23 through 24, that the worship has moved off the mountain. No longer do the Jews worship at the temple in Jerusalem if they'd be able to truly worship God. And no longer are the Gentiles going to worship at Mount Gerizim. No longer do Samaritans to half-breeds to Gentiles to Jews in these separate places all trying to find the same God. God brings them all together, Jew and Gentile, through spirit and truth in the person of the Messiah who gives living water. So no matter who you are, he's offering it to you. He's offering living water to you. Some of you are feeling the weight of guilt and sin and shame and a history of poor choices and all the scars to prove it. And he's offering you living water. All you need to do is take it. To trust him. To, to ask him to forgive you of your sins. And to give you new life. Because trusting in Jesus gives life to a dry and thirsty soul. Some of you here today have been a Christian for a very long time. You've put your faith in him, but you're stumbling along. And the call for you is to drink of this living water again that he gives. Because you don't need to have a dry and thirsty soul. Trusting in Jesus gives life to a dry and thirsty soul. And this life is regenerating in its very nature to satisfy you all of your days. In October 1871, the Chicago Fire destroyed much of the bustling city of Chicago. But one of the surprising aspects of that story was that the fire actually started on the other side of the river from the city. And it jumped the river and entered into downtown where it ran rampant. The question was asked for some number of years after, how did the fire cross over the river and to, to reach and to destroy the city of Chicago? Well, the river jumping fire is partially explained by the high winds and the spread of the fire by lighting the wooden ships that were in the river as sort of a bridge to get across. But there was another and even more important factor to the spread of the fire. In those days, the Chicago River was a shallow, sluggish sewer 
for the entire city. The Union Stockyards of Chicago would dump all of the animal waste into the river. People called it the Stinking River or the Bubbling Creek. It was so bad that the waste in the river had actually become combustible. So all of that putrefaction flowed into Lake Michigan where there were drinking water intakes in the lake and waterborne disease broke out in the city. Every year throughout the 1880s and 1890s, at least 10,000 people in Chicago died from cholera and typhoid. In 1885, 14 years after the Great Chicago Fire, nearly 100,000 people died from illnesses carried by the river's putrid waters. But finally, the city engineers took action. They started digging 28 miles of canal. They moved more earth in the late 1800s than was moved in the building of the Panama Canal. And on January 2nd of the year 1900, a worker opened the sluice gate at Lake Michigan, and the entire Great Lakes flowed into the Chicago River, pushing it in a direction that had never flowed before. They reversed the flow of the river. Now it flowed the opposite way. It flowed into a canal, which went into the Des Plaines River, which went into the Illinois River, which dumped out into the Mississippi River. And this brought a huge flow of fresh water. And instead of shallow, sluggish, diseased water making the community sick, the river now brought life. Some writers argue that Chicago wouldn't have survived if they hadn't reversed the flow of the river. But this was one of the greatest civil engineering feat of a millennium. But there's a similar principle at work in our relationship with Jesus. What Jesus does is even more astonishing than that feat. Because he reverses the flow of the human soul. Instead of shallow, sluggish, diseased waters of human sinfulness, Jesus has opened the sluice gates of a new and living water into your life. This water is described as life-giving in its very nature, as satisfaction producing in its very nature and leading to eternal life in its final result. So much so at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, you see this description of a river of life. And in one of the last verses of the Bible, Revelation 22, 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the ones who hear say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life, do so without price. Trusting in Jesus gives life to a dry and thirsty soul. 